0: I'm going to be bold here. I am the master of my house. I'm the head of my household. It's my domain, it's my kingdom, and what I say goes until it doesn't. And when I put my foot down, somebody pretty often moves it. That's kind of how it is be the king of my kingdom, but I feel often more like a hostage negotiator. We're leaving. Please put shoes on. I will pay you 50 cents to wear pants today. Just fine pants. It doesn't seem very much like my kingdom, does it? This, I think, points to one of the big struggles of the Bible. The Bible Makes this argument that God made the world and everything in it. In fact, Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it, it belongs to Him. Paul even quotes this verse in Corinthians chapter 10. But when we look at our world, it doesn't look a lot like God's kingdom, does it? It doesn't look like God's in charge all the time, or or if it is, it's a God I'm not sure that I want to meet. Why are there shootings, genocides, and wars? How can we explain cancer and Alzheimer's, aches and pains, broken legs, and broken hearts? If an all-loving and all-powerful God is in charge, how can these things be? Of course, the Bible makes the argument uh, and deals with this issue across the story. That the world is not how it should be. That there was a fall. That there's something wrong with our world. And that God is, in fact, doing something about it. The king is reclaiming his kingdom. This plan starts with Abraham. And a people set apart by God to bless the world. The kingship of David really establishes that God is establishing a kingdom here. And they look towards David... The prophets wrestle with this very issue. If God is really in charge, and if we are God's chosen people, how can we explain our exile? How can we explain that we are in captivity? We're not even in our promised land. The Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. Someone to come and establish the kingdom. Wrongs righted, justice found. God worshipped by all. But they weren't quite sure what it was going to look like. They weren't quite sure how it was going to happen. It was promised. They were watching for it. but, But what would it look like? It was shaped a lot by the Maccabean revolt that happens a couple hundred years before Jesus comes. They expect somebody to come in power and authority. After all, the promised Messiah will be in the line of David. Doesn't that mean that person will be a king and establish a kingdom in this world? And yet when Jesus comes, He is not what people expected. It's kind of important you understand this. Jesus is rarely what you expected. He's just not going to do what you think He's going to do. And He's inaugurating a kingdom. He's bringing about a kingdom and He talks about it a lot. But it's not what they expect. In Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven. In Luke, it's called the kingdom of God. Matthew is writing for a more Jewish audience So he would tend to not want to say God because a Jewish audience might accidentally say God's holy name and you didn't want to say it in vain so you never said it. So Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Luke says kingdom of God. Same thing. God's kingdom that is coming. But Jesus talks about this kingdom very differently than what people would expect. He uses the language of kingdom because that's the language of the day. If Jesus said These words today, he might talk about the democracy of God or the the governance of God, but in Jesus' day they had kingdoms and so he said kingdom. Jesus talks about his kingdom a lot in parables, really in short parables, they're not even really stories, they're what we would call metaphors. And we need to to flesh that out a little bit to understand what metaphors do. Metaphor takes two things and compares them and says, this thing is like this thing in a certain way. There's a very famous one that a lot of us will be familiar with by the uh, great philosopher Forrest Gump. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Metaphors have been for a long time considered low-level communication, but But um, linguists and philosophers are starting to say that that's far from the case. That often metaphors teach us things you can't learn any other way. In fact, a lot of what we know in medical science today comes from the reality of of a metaphor of the body as a machine. Once we started creating machines and started to understand how machines work, we started to look at the body and say, ah, the body's kind of like a machine. It's got all these systems, it's got all these parts. We started being able to do more diagnostics to replace certain parts or fix others. Metaphors uh, always sort of break down at some point, right? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, that makes sense. Except some boxes of chocolates are all the same, right? So the metaphor breaks down a little bit there. And sometimes in life, you get exactly what you're expecting. So a metaphor is always limited. It it always says something, but it can't say everything because you're you're comparing two things that aren't alike. You're just saying they're alike in this certain way. You can't take metaphors too far. For instance, the medical field is starting to move a little bit away from the metaphor of the body as a machine because, because your body is kind of a machine, but it's also much more than that. It might be a machine, but we we can also talk about stress and spiritual health. And there's a move towards more holistic doctors. Because the metaphor can only take you so far. And so Jesus uses a lot of metaphors to say, no, my kingdom is not like you're expecting. My kingdom is something else. And so we're in Matthew chapter 13. There's a lot of stuff going on in Matthew 13. And I'm just trying to stick to a couple of small metaphors. The parable of the sower is in this chapter already, the parable of the weeds. But here are just a few short parables. There we go. Starting with the mustard seed. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took and hid three measures of flour, Uh, uh, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was leavened. This picture is—that's those are mustard seeds. That's a whole bunch of mustard seeds in somebody's hand. So you can see how small, how teeny the mustard seed is. That's a whole bunch of mustard seeds can fit right in the palm of your hand. But when it grows up, it becomes a rather large plant. Now there's a picture of a rather big mustard plant uh, mustard tree on the right, you can see a guy standing there. Okay, by Israel standards, that's a pretty big tree. By Western Pennsylvania, this is like a bush, right? I mean, it's not, um, even Jesus in the parable talks about how it's a garden plant. It becomes more like a tree, though, out of the garden. But still, you can see in Israel, in a really barren land, that that plant grows to be pretty big little teeny seed grows to be pretty big. And if you're in Israel, there's not a lot of other places for birds to make their nest. This is a great one, though. You can get a lot of different nests in these plants. starts out small, very, very small, becomes home to many. Leaven would have been like we could buy... Like rapid rise, instant yeast you see here. But in those days, they don't have a store. You can't go get it. So you know what you'd have to do? You'd have to keep back some of, your, some of your dough that's starting to ferment. So you had a little bit of dough. And you would keep it, and then you would add it to a new batch of dough the next day. And it would then start to ferment the whole thing. And you would be constantly doing this. But in reality, yeast is kind of gross, right? It's actually like a moldy... This is where you get a thing called sourdough bread. Because if it starts to work, then it should be sour. It should be able to smell it. Normally, yeast in the, in the Bible is a metaphor for something bad. It's sin because it's gross and it sticks around. When the Passover comes, you're supposed to get it all out of your house because you want to remove all of the sin before the Messiah comes. But Jesus takes the metaphor and makes it a good metaphor. And says says it's a small, small amount of yeast. It's not a lot. But this three measures of flour is a ton of bread. There, there's some question in the text as to why this lady is making this much bread. You would make bread on a daily basis in these times. But this is a lot of bread. This is bread for a feast. This is bread for a ton of people. And so Jesus is trying to say with these metaphors that His kingdom starts small but grows to something big, grows to something where things where where people can find a home in it, grows to something where it could be a banquet. But it starts small. See, everybody wants Jesus to come in and have this great big banquet, this huge thing. He's going to be king. Will you rule your king? Will you start your kingdom now, Jesus? But his kingdom starts small. This can be frustrating for us. I, we had vacation Bible school this week, and I'm going to brag on you all. We, we have a great vacation Bible school. It is awesome. It is a ton of fun. We do some of the best vacation school, Bible school out there. And you know what? Anymore, just not a lot of kids come. And it's kind of sad for me, and as I was reflecting on this text, I think, man, I would love to have 75 kids in this sanctuary. Just fill it and have an awesome vacation Bible school. I always want numbers to be bigger. I want our pews to be more full. But maybe God's kingdom starts small. Maybe it builds small. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe my expectations are too tinted by the kingdom of this world. That it's supposed to start small, start hidden, start secret, and then grow to something that's powerful. skipping ahead a little bit in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. There's no banks in these days. There's no security boxes. There's no. When you have something valuable you've got jewelry you don't just want it sitting around your tent because then somebody's got to be there to always guard it so a lot of times, you'd put it in a jar and you would bury it. Um, you'd often bury it under your house or in your field. And apparently, this happened often enough that this man is walking through a field and he kicks something, or we don't know how he finds it, but he finds a treasure in a field. And he doesn't take the treasure. He could just grab it and take it, but then there'd be some debate about whether it's his or not. So he goes, sells everything he has to buy this field. So that he can have the treasure inside. Now there's some question as to whether this is honest or not. Should he be buying this field if he knows there's treasure in it? But it's not clear in the parable whether that's true or not. I don't think it's that big a deal for the parable. Really the big deal is selling everything you have. Jesus continues. Again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Here we have a merchant, has a lot of money going after pearls, unlike the first person who kind of stumbles on and just finds the treasure. This person's out looking for treasure. He finds the perfect pearl, and he sells the whole rest of his collection for this one pearl. I think if Jesus told this parable today, it would be somebody who collected classic cars. He's got all these different classic cars, but he finds the car. The one that's that's gotta be his, and he sells his whole collection to get this one car. The commonality in these two stories, they give up everything for the treasure that they find. This is a hard lesson. This is a kind of commitment for God's kingdom that not many of us have. We have our time with God, we give him Sunday mornings, but would we really be willing to have a smaller home, drive an older car? watch a smaller tv would we actually sacrifice for god's will and god's kingdom see the kingdom of god is that precious and if the kingdom of god is really true then none of that other stuff matters none of that other stuff you can take with you none of that other stuff is ultimately important would we give up everything for this kingdom jesus continues Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. This one, Jesus actually gives us a little hint. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you fish, you can't with a net. You can't always decide what you get. Get whatever's swimming through the net at the time. Some fish would be good, some fish would be bad, some fish would be sick. And if you're Jewish, this is particularly important, right? Because some fish are clean and some fish are unclean. Okay, some fish, uh, if you have fish without scales, like anything in the catfish family, the shark family, those are considered unclean. You can't eat those. So this is a very important part of fishing, the sorting of the fish. The kingdom of God for Jesus is like that net. And it catches all kinds of people. And for some people, this is really good news. But for other people who don't want to buy into God's kingdom, it's not so good news. But the bigger lesson of the parable, I think, is that the kingdom is coming to an end. That... That someday this world is going to stop having this pushback against the kingdom. It'll be all gods. He'll get to rule it. There will be a day when there's no shootings, genocides or war. No cancer, no Alzheimer's. No more aches and pains. No more broken legs or broken bones. For an all-loving God and an all-powerful God will be in charge. That's the kingdom you want to be a part of. That's the kingdom you want to make your choice for. And then Jesus asks them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. They're either wrong or lying, by the way. You understand all these things? Yeah, I got it. No, you don't. And we know the disciples don't get it because when he goes to cross, they don't get it. And even at his ascension, some people are still saying, Are you now going to start your kingdom? Yeah, you missed it. But we often miss it. And he said to them, every, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out, his treasure, brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The scribes are the students. The scribes are the ones who will become teachers. And he's saying, I'm schooling you. I'm teaching you about the kingdom of heaven. You're trained for it. You're the master of this house. And he knows he's going to be leaving. He's going to leave his work to them. And he says, you're going to have to bring the treasure out of what's old and what's new. And I think he's talking about the Jewish faith in the old. And I think he's talking about this new thing he's doing. And I think the same thing is true for us today. That we look back at our tradition. We look back at the Bible. But we also look at this new thing that God is doing. And we announce the kingdom. We point it out and we say, look. This world is not everything it's cracked up to be. God is at work in this place. We are the scribes now, and it is not always easy. There was a family that came to VBS, and uh, boy was, boy in the family, about five years old, really we were having behavioral issues with him, Um, particularly as the night wore on, he would get kind of rough, and kind of pushing, and had trouble paying attention, and even though this boy was five, he had worse verbal skills than Eden, I mean, And he's way delayed. And um, the one night, he, he, he kind of threw a, threw a fit. And his grandmother was here, and I asked her, like, help me understand this behavior. And she said to me, well, he has ADHD really bad. And I, I couldn't even, like, pretend. I just said, that's not ADHD. Finally, another member of our, our team, I had to come up and finish my stuff, another member of our team went and talked to that grandmother for a while, found out that that boy is from an abusive home. And so he has a father who his mother has gone back to several times who, who hits him and who abuses him. So a lot of the behaviors that are coming out of this boy are, are coming from this abusive relationship. And at five years old, he, he's already in this position. That is not how this world should be. That is not how this world should be. And it was not easy to work with that boy. It was pretty trying. And I wish I could give you like this amazing, miraculous turnaround story. There just wasn't one. It was just a challenging week of trying to be salt and light for that boy. But guess what? That's our job. That's what we do. We are the scribes. We're bringing out the kingdom. We're trying to bring hope and light to a dark world and say, this is not the only thing. This is not the only story this boy has to live in. And it was not easy. But we got to do it. And a number of our people did it with such grace, even though it was very trying at times. Someday, God will sit on His throne. And things will be made right. And until then, we're the ones calling out. Look at Jesus. Hope for, hope for this world right here. This is where it is. And that is not an easy job, but it is our call. Let's pray. Lord, it's not always easy to follow your will. But I pray that we would do it well. Give us grace to live in your kingdom, even when we can't always see it. In Jesus' name. Amen.